Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. World's greatest philosopher, how may I help you? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because if nothing got dirty, how would you clean it? you got to have sponges, right? I mean, if you have sponges, why not the rest? Mm-hmm. World's greatest philosopher, how may I help you? Does God exist? Well, consider the following syllogism. No geese are felines. Some geese are geese. Therefore, Dr. Oz is a moron. No, you really have to think about it. Call me back tomorrow. World's greatest philosopher, how may I help you? Does free will exist? Well, let me put it this way. The past is fixed. The present is rigged. Carolina wins the Super Bowl by eight points. Uh, You're welcome. This is exhausting. But if it's exhausting, it must be happening. Therefore, objective reality exists. The universe is not an idea. Therefore, I am truly lactose intolerant. Another breakthrough. I've got to take a nap. Meanwhile, you listen to the second greatest philosopher, Daniel Dennett, during a recent visit to the Mark Twain House and Museum. And now, the guy who kept telling Socrates to dial it down a little, Colin McEnroe. We've got a big crowd here tonight. Atheism is the new rock and roll. You're like the Beatles. Um, I want to start with an intuition pump that I came up with. Uh, it's really just a provocative statement, and then you can kind of smack me around. I want to talk about consciousness. So imagine a cupcake machine. It puts out cupcakes, wonderful cupcakes. And we know how to manipulate the cupcake machine so that we can get certain kinds of cupcakes, maybe change the cupcakes that it makes. We even know certain parts of the cupcake machine that become active in the making of a red velvet cupcake as opposed to a carrot cake cupcake. But there's seven billion of these cupcake machines on Earth. If we had to build another one, a seven billion and first, we really couldn't do it. We really don't know how the cupcake machine works entirely the way, say, a car mechanic knows how an internal combustion engine works. And we don't also know why there's a cupcake machine at all. So that's what I would say consciousness is. It's that cupcake machine. Am I wrong? Of course. (laughs) You're not wrong uh, about everything. You're right that one of the features of minds, human minds, is they're all different, much more different than fingerprints, and they're even designed to be different. They're, they're designed to be exquisitely sensitive to the history that they endure and enjoy as life goes on. So no two minds are alike. And it's not just that they have different preferences and ideas and memories, but they may have very different dispositions. Some speak French, some speak English. They're profoundly different. Now, wherein does that difference reside? How, how do we settle for that? You're absolutely right that right now, Here's a few questions that science can't answer right now. Look at post-mortem, fresh post-mortem. Look at three or four brains and say, which ones of those are Francophone brains and which of those are are English speakers? Can't tell. We know that the difference between being a native French speaker and being a native English speaker is in the brain. But we don't know how. We don't know how that's lodged. We, We know even parts of the brain that are specialized for language. But nobody today, and probably nobody in 50 years, will be able to say, from looking at the brain, 
oh, this person speaks French or spoke French because we're looking at the person's brain and not holding conversations any longer. So it's true that many, maybe even most, maybe even almost all, the things that we really cherish and are curious about, about individual human minds, are currently outside the scope of scientific investigation today. But what about tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Tomorrow is different, and what we're learning at a great rate is the principles of how brains do this and how and why they evolved. You raised that point at the end. And uh, I think we've got a pretty good handle on why there are such curious things as human minds, human consciousnesses in the first place. I think we can tell a pretty good story about that, which has got scientific credibility, has a lot of evidence in favor of it, and is even capable of making predictions. So you, do you think there will ultimately be a purely physicalist explanation for what consciousness is? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's just put it on the scale with a few other things. Sure. I think most people would accept that, although it baffled earlier centuries, sexual reproduction, development from the egg to the zygote to the living organism, all of that, we've got a pretty good handle on that. We've got a pretty good handle on the genes, pretty good handle on the development. There's lots of things we don't know, but there's no gobsmacking mystery about it. We've pretty well nailed that one. And we pretty well nailed earthquakes and volcanoes. And why should anybody think that in one area, mines, more of the same sort of investigation, materialistic, scientific, why would anybody think that that wouldn't pay off? Um, I think it is, as many people have said, it's the last great frontier, the last great puzzle. Some people say mystery, but I refuse to call it a mystery. It's a bunch of very difficult puzzles. But um, A, I think in my lifetime we've made tremendous progress on it. And I doubt if I'll live long enough to see the spike driven that connects the West and the East Coast on this. We're making progress from both ends, but we probably won't meet in the middle for another 50 or 100 years. To me, the hard problem is that if you were to load the most sophisticated machine imaginable with as many qualia as you could, you still wouldn't have anything approximating consciousness, right? Consciousness is something other than the accumulation and cross-referencing of qualia. What well, do you think qualia are? Well, I, th I think that they are the way things seem, to use your, I think that's yeah, Well, phrase, yeah. but we have had machines actually for years where things seem one way or another to them. So are those quality or not? Let's take a simple example. Yeah. Uh, if I had my PowerPoint here, I'd show you a very simple and well-studied phenomenon of complementary afterimage. I would show you on the screen something that looks like an American flag, only it's green, black, and yellow. And... I say, just stare at the little cross there in the middle. Don't let your eyes wander. And look at it for about five or ten seconds. Then I would turn that off and it would just be a gray background. And boom, you'd all see a red, white, and blue American flag. Just as plain as day. Now, can we model that on a computer? Sure. Child's play. Now, there's a tremendous temptation to say, yes, but the computer wouldn't have the qualia that I have when I look at that when I see that red stripe, what red stripe? The one I saw 
the one that intersected the cross, the lowest short red stripe. Well, one, there's no red stripe on the wall. There's no red stripe on your retina. And there's no red stripe in your brain. So what makes you so sure there's a red stripe anywhere? Well, because I see it. No, you seem to see it. And that's what the machine does, what the robot does too. It's just as sure as you are that it's seeing a red stripe. Why? Because there is a state in it. It's not red and it's not striped. There is a state in it which goes with the conviction that there's a red stripe out there. How many of you have a CD player? Or let's say a DVD. Now let's suppose that you had on your DVD an American flag, a, a, bit, a little bit of video clip of an American flag waving in the breeze. If you were to study that DVD disc, would you find anything red or white or blue? No, you would find representations of red, white, and blue. And it would be in, you know, bit language. We don't need to worry about the details. But it's not red, it's not white, it's not blue. But it represents red, white, and blue. And that's what your brain does. Your brain represents all the things in the world that you see, but not with the same properties. When you seem to see a red stripe, it's not that you're seeing a seeming red stripe. No such thing. You're seeming to see a red stripe. And that's true because your brain has gone into the state that it uses for you to see red stripes. Whenever you see a real red stripe, your brain goes into that state. When it goes into the state now, you're not seeing a red stripe. There's no red stripe out there in the world. There's no red stripe anywhere. There doesn't have to be. Now, I know that's a very hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. They want to put a theater in their mind where the action happens, where all the show happens. No such place in the brain. And we just have to learn how to think about it so we can destroy that image of the inner theater, which just does not exist. If there's no inner theater, do you feel comfortable either knowing what the self is or dismissing that as not an interesting <clears throat> question? Well, there's a long tradition, of course, of dismissing the self. Hume famously says, I look inside, I don't find any self in here. I just find, he says, bundles of perception. Well, I think we can do better than that, but not that much better. I think there's such a thing as a self. It's what I call a center of narrative gravity. It's an abstraction which we cotton to wonderfully. We say, you got a person, very complicated, moving thing. How are we going to make sense of it? Very simple. You postulate a center of narrative gravity. That's the author of the speech acts, the one who's doing the talking, it's the one who's making the decisions, it's where the buck stops. And for most purposes, this idea of a self, I and my body, where the self is in charge of the body, it is a great fiction, a very useful fiction. And that's what a self is. Should we entrust human beings to make important decisions? In other words, given what you think about the free will, given what you think about the self, given what you think about all the predictive coding that's going on in the brain that we're not really aware of and the way, in fact, yeah. the brain drives perception rather than perception, yeah. all that kind of stuff, should a jury of our peers be allowed to impose 
a prison sentence on us based on what they know? Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. a good question. Because our brains are not alone. Animal brains, there's a certain sense in which they are. Some people have called, say, chimpanzees natural psychologists. Yeah, they're pretty good at anticipating the behaviors of their conspecifics using sort of folk psychology, but they never get to compare notes. They never get to argue over whether somebody really believes something or not, or what do they really believe, or what do they know, what do they want. We do it all the time. We grow up communicating and arguing and debating over who's right, what the reasons are. We live, as Wilfred Sellers, great late philosopher from Pittsburgh, called, we operate in what he called the space of reasons. To do that, you have to be able to reason. And to do that, you have to be able to talk about and represent your reasons using language. It's our capacity to use language which gives us, and only us, the competence to be moral agents. That's right there in the word, in the etymology of the word responsible. You're responsible if you can respond to verbally presented reasons. If you can't, you know, no use arguing with a cannonball or an avalanche. They can't respond to, no matter how good your arguments are. Ditto for a bear. Don't try to talk the bear out of what it's doing. It cannot respond appropriately. Those who can respond appropriately, which includes most, but only most, normal adult human beings, those are the responsible ones. Those are the ones that have free will. It makes sense to hold them responsible because they are capable of holding themselves responsible. Those who can't, we say they don't have free will. And we have to treat them differently. We cannot give them the freedom of the land. We can't let them have driver's license. We can't let them sign contracts because they don't have the mental, moral competence to understand what they're doing. Those of us that do, that's the essence of free will. Well, that's an argument for holding that person responsible. But in terms of being the people who do the holding responsible, we seem very flawed vessels. I mean, I mean, you said it's difficult to change the mind of a bear. We know from cognitive science it's not that much easier to change a human being's mind and that the state of the human being's mind will drive perception in some cases, right? If you're a certain person or if I tell you something in advance, you're going to see a rabbit instead of a duck when somebody else looking at the same picture will see the duck instead of the rabbit. Uh, looking at a crime scene, yep. you'll favor a police version. Yep. Another person will favor a defendant's version based on a whole bunch of, if not immutable, pre-fixed, calcified aspects of the brain. So why trust 12 people to make a, with all those flaws? The one word I really object to there is calcified. <laughs> um, because the hallmark of brains is that they're not, unless you've got Alzheimer's or something, they're not calcified. They are remarkably supple. So supple that they cannot help but respond to relevant details that are presented to them. Now, what you're talking about that really is an issue is that there's a sort of arms race that's going on between sort of hidden persuaders and people that are in a position to be reasoned with. Juries are a great example. Political campaigns are a great example. What have we learned over the millennia? 
that people start out naive and they can gradually become more sophisticated. The old stories of the country mouse and the city mouse and everybody in this room is susceptible to being conned by one con or another. But you'd be amazed how many cons wouldn't work on you because you've heard about them, you know. You say, oh, that's the old Nigerian prince scam. <laughs> by the way, I can't resist pointing out, you know the Nigerian prince scam? Somebody asked recently, why do they keep using that preposterous story? Everybody knows, this audience knows enough to laugh about it. Why do they keep using it? And there's a very good reason. This is part of the arms race. It costs next to nothing to send out those emails. It costs a lot to reel in a fish. You don't want a smart fish on that line because they're going to find out sooner or later and you're going to have wasted a lot of time and energy trying to land that fish. You only want people that are really stupid. <laughs> so you keep a deliberately stupid story in your email so that you don't waste your time on clever people and only go after the people who are so naive they'd fall for such a thing. All right, you're listening to a conversation between me and philosopher Daniel Dennett recorded recently at the Mark Twain House in Hartford. We'll be back with more of that. So you've got a, uh, an expression, fame in the brain, right? So this is, if I understand it correctly, this is sort of a competition among yep. mindless neurons and interactions yep. to come to the fore, to bring ideas to the fore. How does something like that, well, maybe you could explain it better than I just did, first of all, but how does something like that give you confidence in the human race? Think about a termite colony. There might be 50 million termites in a termite colony, and they can make fabulous termite structures with air conditioning and so forth, but they can't write poetry and they can't do science. As a collective, as a, as a team, they can do amazing things, almost as if they were like a person, but they're not. They're strict limits. Now, what you have between your ears is in a certain way like a termite colony. You've got 20 billion neurons, maybe 40 billion. They are even more clueless than termites. And they're all really quite independent in their own little ways. They're, they can't move around very much, but there they are. How do you train billions of clueless neurons to do something that millions of clueless termites can't do. How do you make a mind out of a brain? That's, in fact, the main question of the book that I've just finished. That's my next book. And the answer is, I claim, a human mind, unlike the minds of bears and dogs and chimpanzees and dolphins and birds, the human mind is a billions of neurons members, team of basically clueless little agents that have been invaded by wonderful ideas, thinking tools that have been invented elsewhere and refined and developed. Those are the intuition pumps and other tools for thinking. Those are words, for instance. It's words that discipline a human brain and make it capable of thinking about the future in a way that no other mammal or bird can do or fish. It's culture, human culture, that does all the design work that makes an animal brain, which we have an animal brain in our head, there are no magic ingredients in it, 
the ingredients of your brain are pretty much the same as the ingredients in, in the brains of whales and dolphins and chimpanzees and dogs. But what makes those teams of neurons different is that they are subject to being invaded by all these thinking tools that sort of take over. And that's a hard idea to get your head around. That's why it takes a whole book to do the job. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get to the atheism. They're here for the atheism, the humanism, right? Uh, we got to get to that. So Diderot, probably somewhere in the midway point on his journey from faith to atheism, he said something to the effect that, that he was a believer, but he could hang out with, atheism, with atheists very easily. And he said, it's really important that you know the difference between hemlock and parsley. Um, it's not so important whether or not you believe in God. Mm -hmm. React to that. Well, I think I think there's a lot to be said for that, um, especially because I think now I have no idea what the proportions are, mm -hmm. but I know that many, many, many more people believe in belief in God than believe in God, and that's fine as far as it goes. But now I think we can expect to challenge the belief and belief in God and make sure that it's playing a role that's really important to, to preserve. Why am I so sure that so many more people believe and believe in God than believe in God? Well, first of all, I think that there are a lot of people who are closeted atheists or closeted agnostics but they're not willing to admit it yet for maybe some very good reasons. Maybe it's because they don't want to hurt grandma's feelings or because in this town, if you say you don't believe in God, you're going to be, nobody's going to come to you for a haircut. Many, many reasons. Some of them really good and some of them not so good. So they, they go along with the game and they go to church and they say the catechisms or whatever. And so they have all the show of believe in God, when they don't really do it. Then there's the people that believe, that actually do believe, which is a subset of those. Because I think the people that do believe in God also believe in belief in God. I don't know if there's any group of people, or if there are, it can't be very large. These are people who believe in God and wish they didn't. <laughs> They'd be the people who, dang it, they still believe in God, but they don't believe in belief in God. I think that's pretty close to an empty set. <laughs> if that's true, then there are many, many, many more people who believe in belief in God than believe in God. So why don't we start paying more attention to those who believe in belief in God, treat them as the target population of people we want to talk to. Because that way we can talk to people whether or not they believe in God, and we, can, we will be on a topic which is, in fact, of more interest to more people. I think it's not an entirely empty set. I've talked to people who've had near-death experiences that were essentially mystical to them in nature, but instead of the nice one, they had the bad one. They, they had a near-death experience in which they did not see a welcoming white light. Yep. They were not embraced by an all-encompassing love. They had kind of the opposite. They might be the group of people who believe in God but wish they didn't. Yeah, that's why I carefully didn't say it was an empty set. One of, one of my favorite... How many of you have a fantasy of... What you do if you had a billion dollars and a lot of time on your hands? Everybody. Yeah, all right. All right, one of my favorite fantasies is I would enlist all the Hollywood 
magicians, all the people at Pixar and elect and what is it called? Sound and oh yeah, light and sound, industrial light and sound. Is that what it is? Industrial light and sound. Those people. I would put some very careful private detectives out to trail very important people who are very influential, famous Nobel Prize winning scientists and journalists who've won Pulitzer Prizes, other people like this, until I had their, their trajectories through life very well planned. So then I would figure out places where you could pretty well count on them being all alone in some place, you know, in, on a path in the woods or something, and you could set up a knock-your-socks-off close encounter of the third kind, <laughs> you know, with lights and spaceships and all the rest that would just dazzle anybody. And you do it, and then it goes away, and they stagger home or whatever. And my prediction is that a lot of them would think about it, and then they would never say a word about it. <laughs> Because they wouldn't want to ruin their reputations for being for being reliable uh, people whose word could be trusted. They would simply regret that they ever had that experience and bite their tongue. So there may well be people like that who actually have had religious experiences, which it would take torture to drag the admission that they'd had these out of them, simply because they would feel embarrassed by this. So. It's not an empty set, I grant you. Um, I want to come back to what you said at the beginning of this, which is your friend Stoppard in Jumpers, one of his characters says, there's presumably a moment in history when the onus of proof passed from the atheist to the believer, when, in a sense, the nose had it. A great Stoppard line. So do you think that's happened? I mean, have we had peak God and now we're going down the other side of that slope? Yeah, I do think it has. And I think that the revolution in transparency brought about by electronic media is really driving that home and making it a point of no return. You can't raise children today completely ignorant of all of these skeptical possibilities without imprisoning them and, you know, and really sequestering them away. Now, there are a few terrible people that think... That's what you have to do, and that's what you should do. But I think that every religion in the world, the elders are facing an entirely new problem about how to educate the young. Because the young getting so much information and misinformation from outside. And I do not see how that is going to hold the line. If I had the billion dollars and wanted to spend it non-frivolously, I would spend it as carefully as I could on providing education for girls in Muslim countries. I think that would change the world more than almost anything I could, you could do with a billion dollars. It wouldn't be easy, and you'd want to do it the right way. You can't impose it on them. You've got to make this an attractive option for them. But I think that would revolutionize the situation in a, in a wonderful way. I think that just the availability of information has many more effects than people realize. You don't have to, you don't have to proselytize. I tell friends of mine who are people who are atheists, what should we do? I say, you don't have to do much of anything. Just 
just let it drop on occasion. You know, oh, I'm an atheist. And, and you may make a few people surprised. They go, oh my goodness, some really good people are atheists, aren't they? <laughs> and, and some of my friends are atheists. You'd be surprised how many of your friends are atheists. They just don't talk about it. And I think all we have to do without browbeating, without being aggressive, without, without attacking, just go around and acknowledge, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist. And this will change the whole prevailing wind of the culture in a way that is already happening. If you look at the statistics, the fastest growing group in the world is not Islam. It's no religion at all. It's growing faster than Islam by about two to one. Everywhere. My advice to my fellow humanists is piano, piano, as they say in Italian. Go slow, be careful. But that hasn't really been the style of the so-called new atheism. You're sometimes grouped in the so-called, I guess there's three of you now, but four horsemen of the new atheism. You've gone from being an infield to an outfield. But Adam... <laughs> Adam Gopnik in his uh, piece about this said, I mean, part of the style of it is it's more polemical. I mean, not that Freud no. and Russell couldn't be polemical, but that it's more polemical. I think you're very genial and nice and gentle. You're the cute, I, you're For the once cute in my life, I'm the, I'm the good cop. Yeah, you are. <laughs> after, after playing bad cop under many circumstances. And it's a role I'm happy to play. But I think it's important to have, I mean, the late Chris Hitchens, Wonderful, wonderful man. And Richard Dawkins, who uh, certainly is more aggressive and polemical than I am, good friend of mine, and, and Sam Harris. But I think that we need a number of different voices, and I think their voices are very much needed. Mm -hmm. People, A lot of people say, oh, well, Dawkins, he's just preaching to the converted. No, he is not. You'd be surprised how many of the ministers, the preachers, that Linda Lascola and I interviewed, told a tale like this. They said, well, on the principle of know thy enemy, I went out and figured I would read the terrible books by those horrible new atheists. And I read Dawkins and came out thinking, son of a gun, he's right. <laughs> and he's converted a lot of, not just Christians, preachers. And so we need his voice, and I think we need my voice, and I think we need lots of voices, and we don't have to be angry. We can treat this as the way we treat all the other interesting social phenomena around us. We have disagreements, we have differences, we have allegiances. Let's look at them calmly, in a friendly spirit. Let's trade notes, and nobody gets to play the faith card. That's a, to me is the most important thing. Several times I've been on, um, uh, you know, right wing radio religious talk shows, and somebody will, the interviewer will make some declaration about the correctness of the Bible and, or something like this. And on several occasions I've said, "Well, Lucille says you're wrong." <laughs> Who's Lucille? <laughs> Friend of mine. She's always right. And they said, wait, wait a minute. I said, right, you can't do that. That's not polite conversation. It's just, it doesn't count. So just remember that. It doesn't count. If you want to have a discussion, you don't get to play that card. 
Some people say that's terribly aggressive. I say, no, it isn't. That's, that's the way we would treat big pharma and the oil companies and the banks. and That's the way we should treat organized religion, too. They're great big organizations. We will treat them with the respect they deserve and not a bit more. So um, Einstein, who was kind of a Spinozan pantheist at times, said that, well, science, is, science has a religion too. It's cause and effect, right? That's the religion of science. I really don't like that. Okay. Because... Take it up with Einstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm happy to do that. Um, the thing is that we have so much indisputable evidence that cause and effect really works. And when I cross a bridge, I have faith that the engineers have built the bridge so that it'll hold up. And that's faith. I, my faith is so strong, my heart doesn't go pitter-pat. I'm not worried. I have faith in the combination of engineering know-how and the legal system, which will keep the engineers on their toes. They, they know enough to build a bridge that is not going to fall down so that they get sued and so forth and so on. So, I don't know about you, but when I cross a bridge, even a very high bridge, even a brand new bridge, I am completely calm about that. That's my faith. That's not science. That's just common sense. And I think, I have, I think that's the faith of science, too. Look, <laughs> you take the medicine that cures you of some otherwise terrible illness, that bolsters your faith in science. I have a lot of faith in science, but it's not a religion. On the other hand, just to keep the conversation going, yeah. if we could wake up Newton today yeah. and show him quantum entanglement, show him yeah. stuff that Einstein referred to as spooky action at a distance, show him ways in which yeah. you can effectively change the past of a particle, he would go, that's not cause and effect. Wait a minute, what happened to cause and effect? I, that's not what I would call yeah. cause and effect. I'm sure he would, and, and the jury's still out on that. Hmm. The way I think of science is that this is my down east woodsman speaking. It's a bit like an axe. And you get the blade nice and sharp. But there's the heft of the rest of the axe head behind the blade that does most of the work. And uh, if you look at the blade up really close with a microscope, instead of seeing this razor sharp shiny thing, you see it's all jagged. It looks like the Rocky Mountains. That's the cutting edge of science. It's controversial, it's jagged, there's disagreement, some of it's wrong, some of it's out of place. That's the cutting edge, and the cutting edge has always got controversy. But behind the cutting edge is this irresistible mass of iron that's just beyond dispute, and it just comes thumping down, and it, that's, what does the, that's what splits the wood is that's what builds the bridge, that's what cures the disease. It's that huge background of non-controversial science. Now, one bets on the cutting edge at one's peril. Many good theories have gone bust. But you can bet on the heft with tremendous confidence. 
I know roughly as much about Buddhism and Hinduism as I know about quantum mechanics, which is not very much, but let's try to take a look at the two of them together, all right? So Buddhism and Hinduism, the way I understand it, at least there's sort of an idea of oneness, right? That maybe every, maybe the illusion is separateness. Uh, that, that the maya, the illusion is that we're not all one thing. Mm -hmm. And now you look at a physicist like John Archibald Wheeler who would look at this table and say, you know, Dan, it's not really that there are all these particles being held together in this incredibly complicated way. It might really be one electron moving so fast and exploiting time and space in such a counterintuitive way that that's all it takes is to make Dan, the cat, the table, the water bottle, maybe it's one electron. So it seems as though maybe those two ideas are, rather than being on a, on a collision course, on a pretty comfortable set of vectors with one another. I once had the joyful experience of finding myself sitting next to John Archibald Wheeler on a uh, flight from uh, uh, New York to San Francisco. And we didn't need the plane. <laughs> uh, one of the most... The person in the middle seat probably would have been... You know. It was just the two of us. And I, my, my head was spinning and my jaw was dropping the whole way. He, he just regaled me with all of this stuff. And uh, uh, what, a, what an amazing mind uh, he had as a great physicist. And his idea that maybe there's just one electrons are going back and forth in time, weaving the whole universe with itself. When you think of it, it's a stunning idea. And it, it would actually make true something a student of mine wrote on an exam many, many years ago. I used to teach history of philosophy and even the pre-Socratics. And among the pre-Socratics was Parmenides, very strange doctrines indeed. And uh, one student wrote on her uh, our exam, Parmenides is the one who said, there's just one thing and I'm not it. <laughs> I thought about it for a while. I thought, Darn, she's right. <laughs> That's what he said. So the idea keeps coming up. I have no particular allegiance to it, mm -hmm. but I find it a very interesting idea. Yeah, I think it's Ladyman says that maybe... Reality isn't really made much made up of much of anything, and that really what we're talking about in terms of discrete objects is the recognition of patterns, the observation of patterns. So maybe a Buddhist mystic would say, "Well, that's kind of what I'm saying too." You know, that yeah. the truth is the oneness; everything else is Maya or pattern. Well, as the author of a paper called "Real Patterns," <laughs> where that's the very idea that I put forward is as what ontology really comes down to is. What are patterns? Patterns are things that you can, if you see them, you can do better than a coin flip by, as it were, betting on them, by, mm -hmm. by treating them as projectable and hence real. And that that's all there is to something being real, is it being a real pattern. Now that, of course, is, to some people, lamentably agent-centric. It requires a pattern observer to be the one that is going to, as it were, get rich betting on the pattern. Well, it doesn't really any more than horsepower requires the existence of a horse somewhere. It's a relativized concept, but it doesn't, it's not relativized in any way that should bother us. We'll be back in just a few seconds with more of my conversation with philosopher Daniel Dennett, recently held at the Mark Twain House in Hartford. Hey, 
to make an announcement, nothing is real. You are all dreaming in pods while machines harvest your bioelectricity. Nonetheless, it'll snow this weekend. Who put Ryan Hanrahan in charge of the Matrix? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Emmanuel Kant. For show pages, articles, and philosophical proof that here and now is neither here nor there, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to see The Revenant. And now, back to Colin. Okay, how about a question up this side of the room? Sure, right here. Uh, hi, you mentioned Close Encounters in a sort of lighthearted way, but as you know, there are a lot of efforts going on in different continents to uh, communicate with extraterrestrial intelligences. I was wondering if you'd given any thought to whether those efforts are likely or unlikely to succeed. I have no fixed opinion about it. I, I think it's, it's distinctly possible that there's intelligent life in the universe and even to the point of thinking it's a little bit ominous that we haven't encountered it yet, which may mean that when it reaches a certain point it self-destructs before it can spread any further, which is a little bit worrying. But I think if there's life on other planets, the chance of life eventually evolving in technology and the space of reasons is not guaranteed by any stretch, but certainly possible. Sure, a question uh, over here. Well, let's, let's go here to the middle of the row. President Kennedy once, when he had a Nobel uh, convention at the, uh, the White House, said that uh, there's a collection here of human knowledge and talent that hasn't been rivaled since perhaps when Jefferson dined alone. You've been on panels with super smart people. You're, you're all in around, you know, in, these, in this world. I mean, who's your Jefferson dining alone guy that you could point me or us to uh, that has books that we could read or, uh, or YouTube things that we could watch? And uh, wow. who's that guy? You're right that I've, I've gotten to know some breathtakingly smart people. Some of them, alas, are now deceased, like John Maynard Smith, the evolutionary biologist, was both wonderfully, wonderfully smart and uh, just a very gentle and sweet man. I think Jeff Hinton at Toronto, one of the leading figures in deep learning and was a connectionist hero. I think Jeff is about as smart a human being as I've ever encountered. He doesn't write books, but he's written some wonderful articles. Oh, Robert Trivers, a famous evolutionary biologist and, and now geneticist. He has a book on genetics, which is breathtakingly powerful. I can think of a lot of biologists whose work I have great admiration for. Trivers is not entirely stable, but he's stunningly brilliant. Psychologists who, whose work I always admire, even when I don't agree with it. Steve Pinker. A lot of people think he's become just a popularizer. Oh, no. That is one smart dude. And uh, uh, I always learn a lot from him. Philosophers, Andy Clark, comes to mind. 
that'll do for, for now. Not only has he been on panels with incredibly impressive people, he has played on a boat, a version of Scrabble, with Sir Tom Stoppard and Martha Stewart with Robin Williams kibitzing. Now, <laughs> that's True. impressive. All right, we can take one over here, or this man in the middle of the row. Here you go. Dan, I'd like to continue a conversation we had series 56 years ago in the living room of Essequam Videra Fraternity at Wesleyan. At that time, wow. We, we um, uh, would you tell me your name? John Kikowski. Oh yes, hello. <laughs> Fellow pledges, and uh, I remember we were on different sides then about the existence or not existence of God, and I'm way beyond debating. I just want to have a conversation and exchange views. And I'm just, you know, I was struck. I've been struck ever since then by the fact that. We had arrived at these positions before we were 18 years old. And I'm just wondering, could it be that some of us have pre-rational, irrational early experiences that we build upon for the rest of our life? Because I'm still a believer, and you're still an atheist. And that's okay, but I'm just wondering, I remember my early experiences, my devout parents. I wonder what might have been your earliest experience that pointed you in the, in the direction of atheism? Well, uh, my early experiences were, were with what we might call liberal suburban congregationalism. And I sang the hymns and learned the Bible stories and don't regret that at all. And I, So I got a pretty good liberal dose of Protestant Christianity. But I was always sort of a skeptic and went through periods of wondering whether I believed any of this or not. And so what turned me around? I don't know. When I went off to prep school, I found some serious atheists, and I thought, oh, yeah, okay, good. You can talk about this. I guess I hadn't really met any atheists until then. And I discovered that I was an atheist. For the benefit of one person in this audience, I'm going to say that another thing which probably propelled me on this course was that the minister in the Congregational Church where I spent my early childhood was a particularly pompous and self-righteous fellow <laughs> whose, whose attitude, I remember when I was about 12, coming down to breakfast one Sunday before we went off to church, and I said, I won't use his real name. This is how Dr. Smith responds to his wife in the morning. She says, honey, what will you have for breakfast? And he says, I will have eggs and bacon. <laughs> I just thought I saw through him right then. And it was very hard to take people like that seriously after that. <laughs> Sounds like imprinting behavior to me. I think you might have a point here. Uh, we're going to do one more question before we get there. And I think the mic is up there. I do want to thank you for coming out for another episode of Two Men with White Beards. Um, I don't know what the next episode is, but we got one more question here. Dan, I was going to ask you about a conversion experience. If you had such a thing, you partially answered that. Uh, I am a minister, uh, but I just want to honor you and the fact that uh, you speak with a great deal of heart. And heart is a community requirement when you're trying to be present with people. And you exude that very, very well. I want to Thank compliment you, sir. you on that. 
community is really important to you. you maybe you could say Absolutely. something about that. Absolutely. It might be a good place to end, you talking a little bit about what community means to you. The one worry that I have is that many people growing up today don't have any organization that they feel a loyalty to or that they feel a community with that, that can do, can join together in, in moral purpose and moral teamwork. And I think we need those. I think we desperately need those. There's ways of pathfinding to such community organizations. I'm actually have some ideas on it, but it would take me too long to spell them out here. I'll keep it dead simple. If you've never been a member of a choral group where you all pitch in and learn the music and everybody has to sing their parts and you've got to practice and you've got to show up for the rehearsals, and then you go and you give your concert. If you do things like that, you experience common cause in a way that's very important. And many people today don't have that. And I wish I could wave a magic wand or had some clear recipe for how to foster that in a lot of people who are becoming more and more alone in the world. And uh, I don't think a reformed religion is going to do the trick. I think it's going to have to be something else. Well, listen, thank you for coming here tonight, and how about a round of applause for Daniel Dennett? Thank, thank you. you very much. It ain't necessarily so The things that you're liable to read in the Bible It ain't necessarily so World's greatest philosopher, how may I help you? Sure there's life after death. Organ donation. This is getting too easy.